Hello, everyone. It's uh, me again. I'm back on the air. And uh, the reason for this is because uh, I know just a short while ago I had done a podcast earlier uh, with regards to uh, the signers from Connecticut. It turns out that I uh, just experienced somewhat of a uh, technical glitch with my recording from earlier. I tell you, don't you just love technology? Sometimes it has a mind of its own when it's least expected. So I am here to modify that problem, and we're going to talk about the uh, second uh, signer from Connecticut, whom I found was of uh, extreme significance, being none other than Mr. Oliver Wolcott. Oliver Wolcott was born in 1726. He is one of 15 children to a Connecticut royal governor. He graduated from Yale University and studied law. He played a prominent role serving as Major General in the Connecticut Militia and fought in the French and Indian War and later in the American Revolution. He helped recruit troops for the Continental Army's New York Campaign. He was, in fact, a very skilled negotiator who hammered out peace treaties with Indian tribes and confederacies on three occasions and and most notably, he was an arbitrator, one who could who was able to successfully help uh, resolve land disputes between feuding states. And remember this, that during the time that our 13 colonies were um, formed, not all of the colonies, as we know, got their present shapes that we know of as today. Remember that Virginia, for example, stretches all the way out to the Ohio Valley and to the Great Lakes. In other words, Virginia encompasses Ohio, what we now know as West Virginia, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. Of course, now, to make things a little bit more practical, um, New York and New Hampshire, believe it or not, fought over Vermont. Of course, they didn't know about Vermont's existence, but it is safe to say that New York and New Hampshire would have claimed the right to the Vermont territory. But as for Oliver Wolcott, he probably resolved land disputes that involved uh, territory that was, or or yes, land-slash-territory that was right on the Massachusetts-Connecticut line, or say Connecticut to Rhode Island, or just within Connecticut alone. He did sign the Declaration of Independence, which is obvious, but he didn't sign it until October of 1776. Why? Three months later. Well, remember people, not everyone signed the document on July 4th. Not everybody was present at the same time. There were some unique exceptions. As for Oliver Wolcott, he was too ill at the time that the signings, or should I say the motion to approve the document, took place. Perhaps it was best that he stayed home so that he didn't get anybody else sick. I guess it's safe to say that Mr. Wolcott was practicing some good social distancing at that time. Well, um, here is where we really are going to talk about Mr. Wolcott's major significance. Why is July 9th, 1776 so important? Well, for starters, George Washington is in New York City, and he has 
finally received a copy of the Declaration of Independence, five days after Congress had declared all 13 colonies to be separated from England. Now remember people, George Washington, even though he is the general, and yes, he would go on to be father of our country. Remember, there's no such thing as next day air or two day priority rate shipping. In other words, receiving the Declaration of Independence five days after Congress had declared all 13 colonies um, to be separated from England that was big news still. And so Washington is in New York, and he is reading this document to the troops. Not just to the troops, but to people in general. Patriots, or should I say ardent patriots. People who have just about had all they want to take in regards to dealing with King George and that unruly institutional government being none other than Parliament. Oliver Wolcott is there, so I guess it's safe to say that he finally feels well enough that he is not considered a um, a health a threat in terms of uh, health and all that to where he could get someone else sick. <laughs> not funny, but, you know, we think about what we're facing now with social distancing. But, of course, back in 1776, the population... And colonial America is not anywhere close to what we know of as today's population numbers. So anyways, um, what is the big attraction in New York City at, um, at a park known as Bowling Green Park? The attraction that is taking center stage is a 4,000-pound statue of King George III in New York City. After the news has been read, or should I say after George Washington has read the news in the form of reading the Declaration of Independence, the soldiers, along with the patriots, decide to go about toppling the statue. And hey, there's nothing wrong with that. After all, King George III is not very well liked amongst many of those anti-loyalist people. Can you blame them? No. So this statue, 4,000-pound statue, is toppled. Oliver Wolcott has witnessed the destruction of the statue. So here comes a big question right here. Why did Mr. Wolcott find a broken-slash-torn-down statue to be of valuable significance? Well, number one, the statue is made of lead. Secondly, it's not so much the statue is made of lead... Mr. Wolcott had enough genius or ingenuity, I should say, to find every piece available and collect those, collect all of those pieces to where they would be assembled by teams of ox carts taken to Norwalk, which was a sh well-known shipping port, and then in return, all of those parts would be transported back to the Wolcott family farm. Not just for the family to work, but in terms of using it for valuable purposes, but locals would join in the support as well. They would take all of these um, parts of the statue, and given that they were led, they would all be turned into bullets for supporting the war effort. Now think about it. 
we've, if we're going to fight the mightiest empire in the world, being the, being the English, or should I say the British army, you're going to have to, um, you know, you're going to have to put something in your musket and rifles to fire back at them. You know, we don't have shops where um, a general or a high-ranking officer can go into and say, hey, Mr. Jones, I need X number of boxes of um, cartridge. In other words, I, I need boxes full of musket balls. No, you're going to have to melt down a lot of lead left and right to get musket balls for your troops to be able to fire off at the opposition. Well, given that um, given with how much lead that uh, Mr. Wolcott uh, brought back to his home and with all the assembly work that went into place, how many bullets did the Wolcotts and their partners assemble from this King George statue? The answer is 42,088 bullets. Now that is a tremendous amount of work considering just how many bullets you could put in. Now, where did the bullets go to aid the war effort? Mr. Wolcott transported them to Saratoga Springs, New York, in what was known as the Battle of Saratoga, which took place in September of 1777. This battle resulted in an American-slash-patriot victory. Matter of fact, the bullet was... Not the bullet, the battle, I should say, was so pivotal that... Benjamin Franklin, being minister to France, helped persuade the French to join our cause in in defeating the British. It wasn't so much needing the French to support us, but the French wanted to get a little revenge. After all, many of us should know that England and France have never always had the most perfect of relationship, and that goes to show it was that way even in the late 18th century. So, um, well, um, one thing I can tell you is this. Mr. Wolcott saw the bullets that he and his family and and, uh, partners assemble as being hot blasts of his melted majesty. And who is he referring to when he says the hot blasts of his melted majesty? King George III. In other words, by melting all of that lead that was ingrained into his statue, now that it's all melted, we are taking that force and firing it back at his own people, meaning those who adhered allegiance to him. So that's why his melted majesty comes into such great play. Well, uh, Oliver Wolcott dies in 1797. True or false? After he had died that year, did people, just people in general, years later, did they find remnant pieces of that infamous 4,000-pound statue? The answer is yes. Some pieces turned up near an old swamp under the floor. Yes, some pieces turned up near an old swamp. Other pieces turned up on a floor of a milk room. And then some pieces turned up out on an open field for digging terrain purposes. So it, it is safe to say that, um, believe it or not, um, pieces that were not used were found. How much of that statue was probably used to convert 
roughly 42,088 bullets. Well, historians know about 1,400 pounds of that statue is still missing. So it's safe to say that close to 2,600 pounds was used. Maybe not the full 2,600, but close enough to it. You take 2,600 and add 1,400 more to it, you get 4,000 pounds. So it is safe to say that somewhere over 2,000 pounds of that statue was used in order to get just over 42,000 bullets made. And it is safe to say, or I wouldn't say safe to say, it is accurate that historians know that the original fence that encircled King George III statue at Bowling Green Park still remains intact today. Oliver Wolcott's team of assembly workers did save the day for the Continental Army and our country, but the melting of that statue that was full of lead and melting it into bullets truly did allow Patriot forces to become all the more galvanized in their fight for independence from England, thanks to none other than Oliver Wolcott. He simply was, at, he simply was the right person at the right time in the right setting on July 9th of, seven, of 1776 to say, hey, we may, have knocked, we may have toppled King George III, but to make things all the more better, we're going to take whatever we can out of that statue and melt it to where it's going to be referred to as his melted majesty. In other words, we're taking that melted majesty and using it as using it as uh, weaponry for our own terms to fire back at that mother country who has trampled our rights for so long to where, hey, we are willing to stand up to the mightiest empire and lay everything there is on the line. So thank you, Oliver Wolcott, for um, melting King George's heart for our advantage. Well, folks, again, I do apologize for a technical glitch earlier, but the good news is that I caught it in enough time to realize, hey, before retiring for the night, check to make sure everything is good. If not, do what's necessary to modify it, and that's what I have done here tonight. So there, therefore, you all are still... Um, walking away knowing that you still got your money's worth for tonight's podcast. I look forward to another session, and remember, people, uh, we still have a lot more to learn. We've learned about four colonies in four days, and if you asked me which four individuals have been worth learning the most that we've talked about, um, I mean, they've all been great, but if I had to pick one from each of the four colonies that we've talked about Number one, New Hampshire, Josiah Bartlett. Number two, from Massachusetts, I'd say Elbridge Jerry. Number three, from Rhode Island, William Ellery. And, and this has been a tight toss-up between Roger Sherman and Oliver Wolcott from Connecticut. I'd almost have to say Oliver Wolcott, in large part because of what I just mentioned a second ago, him being the right person at the right time, taking a statue that in the eyes of so many was unpopular, but converting it into a better purpose to give back to the Continental Army and defeating that that British force of, of John Burgoyne's troops at Saratoga, which enabled another um, leader, or should I say a leading nation in the world to join our cause, being France. Well, that's all for tonight, and I will be back on... 
on air here soon with another podcast within the next day or two. Stay tuned for now. Good night.